Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we'll be talking with Mark Stein, history professor at San Francisco State and the author and editor of four books and a three-volume encyclopedia on LGBT history, including The Stonewall Riots, A Documentary History. Let's hear what he has to say about this historic uprising. Hi, Mark. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So I was wondering if we could get started by having you uh, talk about the 1950s and the 1960s as an era. So the, the 50s and 60s were an extremely repressive time in American history for the LGBT community. LGBTQ community. Um, can you give us a quick overview of what life was like uh, for them prior to the Stonewall Uprising? Sure, sure. Well, it's not as though things were great in the pre-World War II era, but, um, but it is true that uh, there was increased repression uh, in the 1950s and early 1960s. And uh, uh, many people, of course, know about the Red Scare led by Joseph McCarthy, the wave of anti-communism in the context of the Cold War. But there was a simultaneous uh, Lavender Scare. So we now know, actually, that more gay people were fired from government jobs than communists. 
communists or alleged communists. Uh, so um, in part, it was a campaign against um, LGBT people in government, but also, of course, in private industry, in culture, in the arts, uh, really across the, the economy, across society. Uh, so um, through most of the 1960s, uh, homosexuality, uh, or at least homosexual acts, um, sometimes thought of as just oral sex or anal sex. So, of course, that could extend to uh, straight people as well. Uh, that was illegal in the vast majority of American states. Illinois was the first state to decriminalize sodomy in the early, uh, in the mid-1960s. Um, and then Connecticut was the second in the, at the very, very end of the 1960s. So, so same-sex sexual acts were criminal. Cross-dressing was criminal in many jurisdictions. Uh, to be out in the workplace or to be perceived as LGBT could mean losing your job, uh, rejection by family, uh, prejudice, uh, ostracism, uh, not to mention uh, possibilities of physical, uh, physical violence um, and other kinds of abuse and harassment. So it was, it was certainly a, a difficult time. Now, all of that said, uh, things began to change in the 1960s. So with the rise of uh, various liberals and leftist social movements in the 1960s, there was um, uh, changing cultural attitudes, uh, and uh, the LGBT movement actually began to take shape in the early 1950s, and it revived um, in the mid-1960s and began to have some important successes in the second half of the 1960s. Can you talk to us about how uh, Robert Wagner and uh, the 1964 World's Fair affected this uh, New York City LGBT scene? Yeah, well, so, well, for 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 decades, LGBT people had uh, migrated to American cities and cities around the world, seeing uh, greater possibilities for safety in numbers, the anonymity of urban environments, uh, and also the the greater tolerance and acceptance that sometimes could be found uh, in cities. And World War II, uh, many American cities that were port cities became uh, locations and destinations for service members who returned to the United States and didn't necessarily want to go back to their small farming communities or their small uh, towns across the country. So we know that happened in places like San Francisco, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., Boston, and New York City. Um, so it was certainly true of New York City. Now, New York City had had a thriving LGBT community and culture uh, really since the late uh, 1800s, um, but, uh, but it only grew uh, in the mid-20th uh, century. Uh, so right, Wagner uh, became the mayor of New York City uh, and was the mayor of New York City in the early 1960s, and he was not seen as friendly to LGBT people. Uh, he was allied with social conservative forces, uh, be very much believed in crackdowns on, on vice, what was defined as vice and deviance. And it is true that at the time of the World's Fair, there was a distinct crackdown on the gay bars of New York City. Um, but as we move forward, uh, we have a very different mayor in the second half of the 1960s, um, uh, and that's John Lindsay, and uh, he was the mayor at the time of the Stonewall Riots in 1969. You talk about uh, the, his, uh, John Lindsay's, mayoral election uh, that, that's coming up, right. and, and uh, how did his campaigning for re-election, how could that have been a possible factor in the uprisings? 
Right, right. Well, uh, Lindsay uh, was a liberal Republican. I know that seems might seem like a contradiction in terms today, but there were liberal Republicans, many in the uh, Northeast, uh, and Lindsay was one of them. Uh, and there's actually a tradition, right, of Republican mayors, somewhat liberal politics in New York City in particular. Um, and uh, so Lindsay, as part of his general liberalism, had actually uh, supported some degrees of reform for LGBT people in office. So he issued a directive, for example, against um, aggressive police entrapment of gay people where undercover police officers would uh, sexually entice uh, men to uh, uh, commit sexual crimes and then reveal themselves and then arrest. Well, um, Lindsay began to crack down on that. Uh, And he also, uh, during his administration, there began to be a little loosening up on how the courts approached gay bars. So in the past, uh, just simply being a place where gay people gathered, that was enough to lose your liquor license. Well, in the second half of the 60s, the authorities, the police actually had to prove something more. They had to prove disorderly conduct. They had to prove that there were criminal sexual acts uh, taking place. Now, of course, that was uh, enforced in discriminatory ways. So a touch on the shoulder in a straight bar might mean nothing, but in a gay bar could be used as grounds for closing the bar down. Um, But still, there was that kind of opening. So Lindsay was seen, uh, you know, certainly, you know, he was not uh, a a supporter of equal rights by any stretch of the imagination, but um, he was seen by many in New York City as more friendly to uh, the LGBT community than previous mayors had been. So 1969 turned out to be an election year for mayor in New York City. And Lindsay was running, uh, and he lost the Republican primary to a much more conservative Republican. Uh, And as we move into June, just a few weeks before the Stonewall Uprising, um, uh, there's a conservative Democrat running. There's now a conservative Republican running. Wagner had actually run, but did not win the primary. And Lindsay had run, but did not win the Republican primary. So I think we should pay much more attention to uh, the timing of Stonewall, because what people remember is that Lindsay won the election in the fall. Well, he won the election as a third party candidate. Uh, in In New York City, there was a, a pretty strong uh, party called the Liberal Party, and he ran uh, as the candidate. Excuse me, <clears throat> and he ran as the candidate of the Liberal Party um, and won a three-way, basically a three-way race for mayor. But nobody knew that in late June. So as far as New York City residents would have thought and would have expected, and that would have included the LGBT people at the Stonewall Inn, uh, there was going to be a turn from this period of reform supported by this liberal Republican mayor uh, to a much more conservative law and order politics that was represented at the national level by Richard Nixon and that was represented on the local level by um, this uh, Republican candidate and Democrat candidate who were far to the right of John Lindsay. And maybe we should come back to this, but I, in your book, you emphasize this theory that tries to understand why riots and revolutions happen when they do. Um, and you say that they don't occur during the worst of times, but rather after a, when a long period of improving conditions is followed by rapid reversal. Can you tell us more about this theory and how it corresponded 
of course, at the moment. Yes. Well, it's actually a theory that had been put forward by a, a very well-known sociologist, J Davies, um, in the early 60s. And he had tried to apply that theory to everything from the Russian Revolution to the American Civil War, and then certainly to the Watts Rebellions um, in uh, Los Angeles in 1965, and more generally to um, the rise of black civil rights and black revolutionary politics. Uh, so um, what I discovered was that one of the reporters who uh, wrote an account of the Stonewall riots in a gay newspaper, he invoked that theory. He didn't name the sociologist. I had to do some digging to figure out who he was talking about, but he invoked that theory. And right, as you said, it was the theory that um, revolutions don't tend to happen uh, uh, during the worst of times. People are just struggling for survival and don't necessarily have the um, capacity or the psychological or emotional um, uh, uh, bandwidth to organize uh, revolutions, but rather... His argument was that uh, many revolutions happen when people's expectations have gone up because there have been a there's been a long period of improving conditions, uh, and then suddenly there's a turn for the worse, and it's in the gap between the heightened expectations and the disillusionment that follows that revolutionary conditions exist. Now, uh, it turns out political scientists, sociologists, historians debated, and more often than not criticized that theory for a decade before it was largely discounted. But I find it really interesting that a gay journalist uh, thought that that theory mapped really precisely onto uh, the situation for LGBT people because, uh, in his view, there had been these improving conditions in the 1960s, um, and and then uh, I see a series of uh, transformations, conservative uh, transformations. And in that basket, we can include Nixon was elected in November 68 on a law and order platform. He was inaugurated in January 69, so only several months before the Stonewall riots. I think police forces around the country supported Nixon, supported the conservative politics that he represented. I think they felt emboldened by the turn away from liberal reform in the 1960s. Um, and, you know, we teach this and we study this as the rise of the silent majority. Um, but Nixon was really at the head of that. And uh, so I do think um, uh, whether we're talking about a series of uh, police killings of gay men uh, and trans people on the West Coast and the East Coast in the months leading up to Stonewall, um, or we uh, look at other, other signs of crackdowns um, uh, in those months, you know, I think that uh, there is something to that notion that uh, there had been this, these improvements uh, followed by reversals and disillusionment. And I would say much of the country's progressive forces in in 1969, we're, we're really troubled uh, about what had gone on in 1968, the Democratic Convention, the election of Nixon, the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. And moving into 1969, I think there was a, there was a sense uh, of uh, worry and anxiety and disillusionment uh, uh, and the prospect of conservative backlash that was um, running through um, people's minds uh, in the spring and summer of 1969. I want to talk about this crackdown. Um, there's this unusual trifecta that is the police, 
the SLA, which is the State Liquor Authority, and the mob that are somehow encroaching on this New York City gay bar scene. Right. How did these three actually work together to create this perfect storm? Well, the organized crime and the mafia in particular had seen gay bars as a as a good uh, economic opportunity because these bars were kind of underground, they skirted the law, and because there was always the risk of police raids and police harassment, there was the opportunity um, to uh, kind of work with the police on exploiting uh, the gay community uh, and everybody who uh, participated in gay bars. So there were dozens of mafia-affiliated Mafia-owned, mafia-managed bars in New York City um, by the by the late 1960s, uh, and by all accounts, there were payoff systems in place. This was true in some American cities, but not in others. But it was true in New York City, where um, the uh, uh, police would receive um, payoffs by the mafia in order to either avoid raids or be warned when the raids were happening or to avoid arrest of their members during the raids. So there was this system of collusion between the police and the mafia, and the gay community was upset as much or more with the mafia as it was with uh, with the police. Uh, and then there's the state liquor authority, as you mentioned, and uh, also many allegations of corruption um, involving those liquor authorities in terms of whose bars were raided, why were bars raided, when they were raided, were there payoffs in place. As I mentioned, um, there were challenges to state liquor authority um, practices that had some extent, to some extent, limited the ability of the um, SLA to crack down on gay bars. Um, that had happened some favorable court rulings in both New Jersey and New York. Um, uh, so, you know, so they were certainly involved as well. And so when the police raided um, the Stonewall, you know, in late June of 1969, um, they did so in part uh, based on allegations that there were violations of liquor laws. That was kind of the official explanation, although there were many other explanations uh, that have been offered as to why the police raided the Stonewall twice that week and why in particular on that night. Uh, perhaps now you can give us a, a recap on the events that occurred on the early morning hours of June 28th, 1969. Sure. So, uh, so the Stonewall was one of uh, several dozen gay bars in Greenwich Village uh, in southern Manhattan, and uh, mafia-owned since the mid-1960s, and it had reopened as a gay bar in about 1967. So it had, the Stonewall Inn had been operating then on Christopher Street in Greenwich Village for a couple of years as a pretty popular gay bar uh, with a pretty diverse clientele. So by many accounts, uh, what were termed in the day transvestites Vestites were um, present in the bar, were accepted in the bar, um, were allowed to frequent the bar. Um, and uh, although accounts differ, uh, people of color as well, uh, especially African Americans and Puerto Ricans uh, in New York City. Uh, so um, on this particular night, uh, it was the second time the Stonewall was raided that week. Multiple theories about why uh, there were allegations of the violations of liquor, liquor licensing laws. Um, because the Stonewall was operating as what was called a bottle club, uh, so that they weren't supposed
supposed to be um, uh, selling liquor in the usual way that a bar would. Um, then there were allegations uh, of unclean and unsanitary facilities, watered-down drinks. Uh, there were allegations that there were blackmailing rings that centered on the bar, uh, that there were uh, prostitution um, uh, business, you know, uh, uh, a prostitution ring that operated out of the bar, uh, allegations of uh, child sexual abuse uh, connected to the bar. So there were all these theories. So, you know, I think we need to be careful when we talk about uh, the raid as, to not romanticize or glorify the Stonewall Inn. It, by all accounts, was an exploitative place. Today, if any of us are concerned about consumer affairs or public health, we might, you know, think that bars like that should be raided, um, or at least should be, uh, you know, should be um, restricted in certain ways. Uh, In any case, the police arrived. um, uh, Most accounts suggest that six to eight police were initially present. uh, And at about two in the morning, they um, moved into the bar, uh, announced their presence. It became clear that there was a raid. And uh, most accounts suggest that there were about 200 people uh, in the bar at that point. So making it a pretty sizable establishment compared to some of the other hole-in-the-walls that uh, gay people frequented in the village. Uh, And uh, what the police then did was typical in in a bar raid. They began sorting the people out. They singled out the bar managers, the bartenders, the bar owners, the bouncers, because they would be targeted. So would trans people. Uh, so would um, people without identifications, and that could include underage um, patrons. It also could include people without um, citizenship documentation status uh, or legal legal residency status. Uh, and, and also anybody who talked back, fought back, showed lip, showed attitude. So most of the people were allowed to leave the bar, um, but the people who were uh, on the police's list um, um, – uh, to be detained were kept inside the bar, and as the majority of people left the bar, uh, a crowd gathered outside. The crowd consisted of people who had left, been allowed to leave, uh, uh, and people who had just been enjoying Greenwich Village on that night, or in the surrounding neighborhood, there were other bars nearby who heard about it and began to gather on the streets. So as the police began then to try to escort some of the people they had detained from inside the bar to the police wagons, uh, the crowd began to erupt, uh, throwing coins that was meant to symbolize the collusion, the, the corruption between the police um, and the mafia. Uh, throw coins at the bar, throw bricks, throw cans, throw garbage um, uh, cans. Uh, and soon the police realized they had a situation, and they retreated back into the bar, um, most of them, and uh, tried to uh, continue uh, loading a few um, of the detainees into the police wagons. Now, it's at that moment that there are, you know, uh, dozens of theories about who fought back first, who threw the first blow, what exactly turned this uh, this intense environment into an explosion. Some people point to a lesbian fighting back. Others point to trans uh, people fighting back. In, in the middle of the night, 
it was not necessarily easy for observers to distinguish between uh, and categorize who exactly is gay, who's trans, who's a lesbian, who's a woman, who's a man, you know, who doesn't fit any of those categories. Um, but, uh, but what we do know is that the crowd began to erupt. Uh, and uh, eventually they tried actually to light the bar on fire. Um, and uh, that didn't happen. Uh, and by some accounts, the police were about to fire back with guns into the crowd. Um, when uh, reinforcements arrived, the anti-riot police began to take control of the streets. And what then is- ensued were about five days of um, uh, rioting in the streets of Greenwich Village. There were three particular nights when large numbers uh, rioted, two consecutive nights, and then it was quiet for a few nights, and then another night of more intense raids. And actually, by now, we're in early July. Um, and... Uh, um, uh, so, uh, about 13 people arrested, the inside and outside of the bar were destroyed, there were a good number of injuries uh, to both the police and to, um, uh, to other people who participated or who were just in the crowd, uh, and uh, until finally, about a week later, it died down. So is there any evidence that Deputy Seymour Pine had a particular vendetta against the Stonewall Inn or its owners or its patrons? Well, I think he uh, did target uh, mafia-owned, mafia-managed bars. Stonewall was one of many examples of that. Uh, some people uh, have argued that we really shouldn't point the finger so much at um, Pine, uh, that he was really just enforcing the law as the law existed at the time, right? So there probably were liquor licensing code violations. There probably were unsanitary conditions. Uh, there was mafia exploitation and involvement. Um, I don't really buy that notion because uh, – uh, we know laws are selectively enforced, right? And I don't often hear about the laws against oral and anal sex being enforced against straight people, <laughs> and yet um, they were regularly enforced against gay people. In that fact, that was the justification for the criminalization of of sex. Uh, so, um, so uh, you know, whether we want to point to the individual uh, deputy police inspector or the larger structure of laws. Um, and policies uh, that affected LGBT bars more generally. Uh, that's for, for you and your panel to decide. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is this theory um, that the uprising was instigated by the death of Judy Garland? I, it feels like a bit of a stretch, in my opinion, but I would like for you to explain it to us. <laughs> Yeah, there's a there is a, a kind of folk wisdom about that, and it's a story that's often been repeated over the last fifty years. That Judy Garland was a really popular uh, icon for trans uh, people, for gay people. Uh, uh, that there were lots of campy um, uh, renditions of Judy Garland. There's also the notion that her song "Somewhere Over the Rainbow" from The Wizard of Oz had become something of a gay anthem, uh, and so yes. 
she died and her funeral was earlier in that day. So there's some who make the connection because of the chronological synchronicity, maybe more than anything else, that that's why the queens were on edge and were not ready, were not prepared <laughs> to, you know, to tolerate another police raid. Um, my, my book on the Stonewall Riots reprints about 30 documents from the time, police reports, well, not police reports, but media reports uh, from the gay uh, alternative and mainstream press, uh, as well as gay bar guides and other sources from 1968, 1969, 1970. And there is one account that does make that connection. So we can't completely rule it out as, you know, an invention of later commentators. Um, You know, it was in the air at the time, but it's not in an account that otherwise I would give a lot of credence to. Uh, And if anything, it's part of a of a kind of uh, anti-gay account that um, that uh, saw uh, gay rioters uh, wanted to kind of minimize gay rioters by portraying them as as uh, drag queens who are you know on edge because of Judy Garland's death. <laughs> <laughs> now, clearly, there is uh, some strong homophobia and transphobia at play uh, in the lead up and and during this uh, uprising, but. You suggest that the language of phobia is problematic. Can you expound on that? Yeah, I think uh, we talk a lot about homophobia and transphobia, which since the 1970s really uh, has been a popular way, a common way of talking about what I think we really mean is anti-LGBT bias, prejudice, discrimination. Um, And uh, I think there are objections to those terms because phobia, right, it means irrational fear. Uh, It comes from a psychological framework, uh, if not a psychoanalytic framework or a psychiatric framework. And it kind of reduces uh, the very complicated issue of bias, prejudice, and discrimination to one that's more psychological and rooted in fear. So, um, so we don't, uh, the problem is we don't have great other terms. I mean, if we want to focus on the other side of the question uh, or the other side of the equation, we could uh, talk about heteronormative supremacy, you know, say mm-hmm. the way that critical race <laughs> scholars talk about white supremacy. So it's uh, heteronormative, the structures and the ideologies of heteronormative of supremacy that leads straight people to believe that they are superior to everybody else. Uh, and, you know, we can also then talk about anti-LGBT bias, prejudice, discrimination, although I realize that's a, mouth, a mouthful and it's much easier to just say homophobia and transphobia. That term, though, uh, heteronormative supremacy rings uh, very true, though. Yeah, and I, I like it f- not only because it emphasizes uh, the superiority of heterosexuality over homosexuality, but also because uh, uh, in using heteronormative rather than heterosexual, we're also underscoring the fact that not all forms of heterosexuality are privileged uh, in society. So to go back to the Stonewall moment, it was only two years earlier that the Supreme Court struck down laws that banned interracial marriage. Right, uh, so that form of heterosexuality had long been contested and remained uh, contested even after it was legalized in all of the American states. Um, intergenerational heterosexuality, uh, uh, commercial forms of heterosexuality. There are all sorts of forms of heterosexuality that are also uh, either criminalized or uh, uh, or. Um, 
discriminated against in American society. So, so I think uh, the notion of heteronormative supremacy captures that dual sense, uh, privileging of heterosexuality over homosexuality and the privileging of certain kinds of heterosexuality, marital, ho- uh, monoracial, uh, private, domesticated, reproductive, all of those um, things that get attached to heterosexuality, but that, as we know, uh, 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 not all heterosexuals necessarily practice. So finally, if you had to pick one person or thing that you think is to blame for the conditions that led to the Stonewall riots, what or who would you pick? Well, I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> and, and I have to say at the outset, because I know sometimes you ask about who we're going to put in jail, you know, and I'm a believer in, you know, restorative justice. And I read a lot about, we have to be very concerned about the criminal justice system and the prison industrial complex. So I don't want to go on record as, you know, as... You're not putting anyone uh, in jail. No, we are. <laughs> <laughs> but if I can, if I can have some, a little fun with this, I would would put uh, in jail, if I had to put somebody, Richard Nixon. And I know that's a stretch. Tell me more. (laughs) Well, first of all, of course, Nixon famously avoided prison because of the pardon he received from Gerald Ford. So, you know, on a certain level... you know, we're set, we can send him to prison for different reasons and have some justice in that sense. But also, you know, if we're looking to single out an individual as symbolic or representative of a, lo- of a larger phenomena, um, uh, Nixon represented the rise of a certain kind of law and order politics, the rise of the silent majority, the conservative remaking of the Republican Party. Uh, a conservative social politics uh, that brought together uh, Cold War um, anti-communism and economic conservatism with racial and gender and sexual conservatism. Uh, And uh, uh, so I do think that uh, on the more local level, Nixon's election emboldened police forces around the country, made them feel like they could do things that maybe were being questioned um, in earlier in the 1960s. Uh, and so uh, if we can treat him as uh, symbolic or representative of that larger silent majority uh, emerging Republican um, uh, Party uh, hegemony, uh, uh, all of those things, then, then I'll vote for Richard Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to have uh, to really revisit <laughs> our our verdict based on your <laughs> expert opinion. <laughs> because I imagine you were focusing more on Seymour Pine or the mayor or the and more at the local level. Well, you know, they, they definitely have some responsibility too. Uh, it's more like, you know, and I love how your program kind of bounces back and forth between the micro um, explanations and the macro explanations. So, you know, I blame the police at the micro level, but I blame um, the larger structures uh, surrounding the police and emboldening the police um, at the macro level. And so for that, I'm just, I'm just singling out Richard Nixon. Well, thank you so much, Mark Stein, for joining us today and teaching us more about the Stonewall Uprising. Thank you. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? 
and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress and anxiety we carry around as we go about our everyday life. At The Alarmist, we know it's always better to say it out loud and talk it through. Whenever I stress about the sinking of the Titanic, I don't sit with those thoughts in a dark room. I turn on the lights and dive right into it. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and work through what's really going on. Maybe you can't stop spiraling or catastrophizing. I started therapy over 10 years ago and never looked back. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Heck, we sometimes change our minds and rethink the verdict at The Alarmist. And that's also okay when it comes to therapists. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Alarmist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash alarmist. With us today, we have producer Amanda Lund. Hi, Rebecca. How are you? Amanda, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, How about that Mark Stein? I mean... Yeah, fascinating stuff. I am obsessed with his you know, take on the homophobia and just the word of phobia, it really lets, lets them off the hook, the phobia word. It really does. And we had this same issue when we were talking about, uh, like the hate, we, we were trying to find a word. Remember we were like white fear, the fear of the black man. This was in right. the Tulsa riots episode and we couldn't pinpoint it because it, it felt like we were letting them off the hook. But it's sort of like the difference between a crime of passion and like a premeditated crime. It's like fear is such a base human emotion that it it is just like it's it's an instinct that you can't control and you have no choice in. And so that's why I do like the um what did you call it heteronormative supremacy? Yes. I like that. We're we're talking about the same thing in the sense um, the, just and and he said this. It was the, the idea, like why why do these heteronormative um, ideals 
why are they the preferred? Why are why do they get to decide what's right and what's wrong? Okay, I'm with you for that. I also think um, he did mention Nixon. Right. And so I don't know if that's somewhat something you're interested in, but I do know I can think of a topic where we could pin Nixon. <laughs> what is um, that? Watergate. Oh, <laughs> well, I wouldn't be too sure, Amanda. Sometimes those that's things are true. sneaky. <laughs> well, we could give it a go. We can give it our best <laughs> try. Um, yeah, I, while I would like to put Nixon in jail, and he said that Nixon kind of deserved to be in jail because he had gotten out of jail already. He kind of had like scooted by and didn't go to jail. So he felt more comfortable putting him in jail. Um, but I, while I agree with him, and I do think that Nixon really empowered uh, just, you know, the, the, the systems at, at, at play to feel like they could go uh and 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 do these kind of raids and and impose these kind of um you know laws that were really subjective who to you know who they wanted to impose them on like he said it wasn't like straight people were were being charged with sodomy you know right. anywhere um so it was very selective in that sense um while i think he empowered them i do th- still think that heteronormative supremacy superiority is still more to blame i agree and i like the language tweak i think it's um it's sort of it just i like when we sort of tweak the terms we use because it shows that we're listening and we're evolving and we're really taking in what the experts are telling us (laughs) and we're becoming smarter the alarmy is is becoming more intelligent yes along with us we're Along all with learning. Us. <laughs> it's not hard when you start so low. <laughs> the only way we have to go is up, baby, up. <laughs> That's really positive. I love that positive sentiment. Thank you. So um, go ahead, change, change yeah, your verdict. I think let's change it. Heteronormative supremacy. You're going to the alarmist jail. I will never say the word homophobic again. <laughs> yeah, lesson learned. And I have a little update for everyone. I know you all remember my desperate plea for um, rates and reviews that I did on last week's Aftermath, but I just want to give a little bit of an update. Um, I don't remember what we were at last time as far as how many reviews, but I think it was like 940-something. Sure, Does 940, right? 940 or 50, yeah. Okay, so we're now at 972 ratings. That's good. So people have shown up, but we're not at the big clap yet because we now need 28 more people to go on Apple Podcasts and rate and review. And I hope that 28 of you listening right now will step up to the challenge so that next week we don't look like idiots again. Oh, how embarrassing. We're not at a thousand yet. I've, I mean, we, you and between you and I, I, do we have 28 friends? I mean, I hope so. I thought I, I did. I know I have at least 12 friends. <laughs> um, but I do have some good news that our star rating has gone from a 4.0 to a 4.5 out of 5. Yay! 
Yay! That's and, really and, good. Yeah, yeah. Now don't clap though, Rebecca, because oh, you're not getting no. The alarmy does not get a big clap until we get to a thousand ratings. Do they get a big yay just for excitement? Okay, they could get a big yay. <laughs> yay! yay! <laughs> well, thank you, everyone. That's really awesome. I I, I feel very supported. And Amanda, I, yeah. you feel you must feel very heard. I do. I feel heard. Would you like to hear one of these reviews? Hit me. This comes in from Deviant1869. Macabre fun. Five stars. Learn along with the host and cast as they explore a variety of history's disasters. Do you agree with their judgments on who's to blame? It's great and accessible for nerds and casual fans of history alike. I love how they picked up on uh, us learning together. Yeah. Because <laughs> not everyone gets that nope, part. Nope, nope. <laughs> well, I feel good. What a great day we've had. Yeah, it's the best day ever. <laughs> well, thank you so much for listening and stay tuned next week. We will be discussing the Manson murders. Ooh. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.